Hello and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome to this edition of SSI Live. My name is John Denny, and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the Army War College. It's Tuesday, March 7th, 2023, and we're again going to spend this podcast marking the one-year anniversary of Russia's latest invasion of Ukraine. Now, last week, we spoke to my SSI colleague, Dr. Evan Ellis, about the role Latin America has played, or not played perhaps, in the war. Today, we'll turn to the European Union and its leading member states. And for this discussion, I'm joined by Dr. Sven Biskup. Sven Biskup is the director of the Europe in the World program at the Egmont Institute, otherwise known as the Royal Belgian Institute for International Relations. He's also a professor at the University of Ghent, where he teaches on Belgian and European foreign and defense policy and on the grand strategy of the European Union and other great powers. He's the author, co-author, or editor of nine books on European security, Europe's role in the world, and grand strategy, the latest of which is Grand Strategy in 10 Words, published by Bristol University Press in 2021. And we are lucky enough and honored to have Sven here with us visiting Carlisle. Sven, welcome. Thank you, John. Sven, let me start uh, broadly as we cast our gaze back over the last year of this war. Uh, what grade would you give? You know, this is the Army War College. After all, we teach students. Uh, we're, uh, some of us have just completed grading in some of our courses. What grade would you give the EU regarding its response to the war over the last year, whether in uh, economic, military, political, or diplomatic terms? Well, if we go for a periodical evaluation, I would say a B for the initial, perhaps somewhat too hesitant start, but then working up to a full A for for really uh, using its instruments to, to pay for member states transferring weapons to Ukraine, for adopting really strong sanctions against Russia. I think the EU surprised itself. But now, maybe at risk of sliding down back back to a B level for you know, one year later, not really having a long-term view on the, on the military side of this. What's your sense of what more needs to be done now? So let's pick up the military angle of this, as you mentioned. What more needs to be done in that regard? Uh, and then what are the greatest impediments, you think, to the EU or its leading member states in achieving those goals? We're still stuck in piecemeal decision-making, and after one year, that shouldn't be the case. The discussion moves from one weapon system to another. Now it's tanks, next will be fighter jets. But even then, short-termism prevails. Maybe Ukraine will get 100, 120 tanks over the next two months or so. But then what? What if after a week of intense combat, they lose 90 of them? Are we then ready to to give them 90 new ones? Uh, do, do Do we even have them? So... What I think really needs to be done is for the EU to sit together with the Ukrainian defense staff and make a plan for, let's say, the next five years. What does Ukraine need? How is Europe going to produce it and and transfer it to Ukraine? More of a long-term vision, a long-term approach to what's been done so far. Because I think however this war 
ends or maybe it doesn't end, we will always have to continue to really uh, support uh, Ukraine. Even if hypothetically there's a peace agreement, that will be fragile. You need to build up a strong conventional European armed force as a deterrent against a third Russian invasion. You know, in one of your uh, most recent writings, uh, I read you remarked about Ukraine as previously being a buffer state, now more of a, a front line, a frontier state. Uh, can you kind of unpack that for us a little bit about how maybe how the EU is viewing that specifically? I think the EU it never called Ukraine a buffer state, but that's how I dealt with it as a, an independent state that could have good relations with both the EU and Russia. And even after Russia invaded in 2014, the EU didn't really give up on that idea. It mediated the Minsk agreements between Russia and Ukraine in the hope that if, if these would have been fully implemented, Ukraine would have remained viable as a buffer state. But I think Russia in the end never really wanted that. And by invading again, they now made it clear it's all or nothing. Either the Russians win, and then Ukraine will be the next Belarus. It will be a protectorate, a satellite. Or, as is most likely, fortunately, an independent Ukraine survives. And I would argue that already today, Ukraine now is in reality a member of our Western security architecture. It's, of course, not legally an EU or NATO member, but it's now no longer a buffer between us and the Russians. It's now our border with the Russians. And so we have a really strong interest in making sure that it survives as the strongest possible frontier state. Okay, I want to come back eventually to the question of how and whether and where Ukraine fits in that European security architecture. But let me now turn to the role of China and pulling China into this discussion. It seems as if it's clearly an implicit supporter, perhaps an explicit supporter of Russia in the war. Uh, we know, though, that over the last couple of years, European attitudes toward China have really evolved significantly as a result of the suppression of democracy in Hong Kong, the really grotesque human rights violations in Xinjiang, the self-serving mask diplomacy that, that was underway during COVID, and uh, the wolf warrior diplomacy, kind of the aggressive uh, approach to diplomacy in Europe and elsewhere. Now we see signs, clear signs of China's, as I mentioned, its implicit support for Russia. The United States has begun warning its allies and speaking publicly about the risk of China turning over military aid directly to, to the Russians. One would have thought that with all of this, the Europeans would have been perhaps a bit more forward-leaning in its collaboration with Washington, taking more steps toward deterring, trying to deter direct Chinese military support, perhaps even issuing statements about Taiwan, trying to deter China there. But at best, I think many in the U.S. believe the EU's steps have been halting and maybe tentative. What's your sense of where the EU and its leading member states are in this regard? And you know, is there more happening maybe behind the scenes that we're not privy to? Sure, the, the EU attitude to China has shifted, has become more skeptical, more realistic in that sense. But that realism cuts both ways. Realism also means that few people in the EU think it's in the EU's interest to have a new Cold War with China. It might be unavoidable, so a lot of this depends on how China evolves, obviously, but certainly we have absolutely nothing to gain as Europeans from a new from a new Cold War. So I think a lot of people are judging China by its actions. And then, as far as we know now, China is not actually supporting the Russian war against Ukraine. As far as we know from the public domain, they're not uh, delivering arms. 
my take is that until now, in spite of all the rhetoric, the, the rhetoric actually masks a policy of non-intervention. They're not dropping the Russians. They have no interest in doing so, uh, but they're also not happy with this. I think they're mightily irritated by, by the, the instability that this large-scale invasion uh, has created. Um, so they're not dropping them, but they're also not really doing anything more to support them. Of course, they don't apply sanctions, that's true, but two-thirds of the world doesn't apply sanctions. It doesn't mean they support the, the Russian war. Um, what they will never do, uh, vice versa, is let Russia or Russia's policies dictate China's relations with the US and the EU. For them, that's totally separate, and it's far, far too important. So the way I read it now, they are trying to, to sort of keep Russia happy, but without actually doing anything, and to make sure that this doesn't unduly damage their relations with, with us Europeans uh, and Americans either. I hope they will stay on this track, because if they would actually deliver weapons, that would change the picture. And in that sense, I think many European uh, senior um, leaders have, have echoed the American pronouncement, have explicitly said that this would change things, but have also said that until now they haven't seen it, and, and they, they strongly hope that China will stay wise and, and, and that they will not change that, that behavior. I think for the moment um, the Chinese regime is focused more on domestic consolidation after the party uh, congress, uh, and, and is not looking for any foreign policy adventure. I think they're looking for, for stability. The EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, recently said that if China was seen to be or known to be transferring weapons directly, that that would cross a red line for the EU. Do you think there's meat behind that, that statement? Or do you think that was mostly rhetoric and the policies have yet to be developed as to what the EU would do in the event of China supplying weapons directly? I think as such, it's an important message of deterrence, so to say. But I also believe that, that the policy has indeed yet, yet to be developed. You could say that, that there is a, a stronger sense of what we would do in case uh, of, of China using force to change the status quo on Taiwan. Because in itself, the sanctions against Russia are an implicit message to anybody else, but certainly to China. This is what happens if you if you break the rules. Though I do think the EU could amplify that and state much more explicitly, if you use force to change the status quo on Taiwan, our economic relationship will never be the same. That's my view, but, but that's certainly not the consensual view in the EU now, I think, given that the cost of, the, uh, of economic decoupling from China would be, would be enormous could be done if you want, it would really be enormous. And at the same time, again, I think it is in Europe's interest not to close any doors preemptively. If China goes there, definitely we have to react. But as long as there is a chance of finding a modus vivendi with China, I think that is much more in the European interest. All right, Sven, my last question for you, I want, to, I want you to ask you to look to the horizon regarding Ukraine's potential membership in the European security architecture, whether that's the EU or NATO, perhaps. Uh, does one of these appear any more likely than the other? What do you think the appetite is for the EU to perhaps move a little more speedily than it has uh, indicated it would be uh, doing with regard to Ukraine's membership? What's your sense? I don't think we can speed up EU membership because even apart from the war, in terms of its economic and political development, Ukraine is by far not ready. And of course, it's now been pushed back because of the destruction wrought by the war. Um, 
effective membership of the EU requires peace. It requires uh, uh, either a total Ukrainian victory, of course, or, because that seems alas unlikely, a peace agreement with Russia. And then uh, Ukraine would have to take the necessary measures to, to, to reform itself, and it could be brought into the Union. And I would say NATO membership, in my view, would follow. Uh, once, you, once you are sure that, that the economic and, and political development has been consolidated, then I think you could also safely take it into NATO. But unfortunately, I, I think this scenario uh, is not likely, because um, my big fear is that at one point Russia may decide that they can no longer gain progress on the battlefield, but instead of talking, they will just dig in, try to stay where they are, and continue to destabilize Ukraine as much as we can, and we will have a running sore uh, for, for many years to come, and there will be no peace. And then we're stuck in the current scenario, meaning Ukraine in that scenario cannot, cannot really join either EU or NATO, but we will treat it as a de facto member to ensure that it survives militarily and that it can, to some extent, thrive economically. Well, potentially a pessimistic outlook, but uh, I think perhaps a realistic one as well. Uh, Sven Biskup, director of the Egmont Institute's Europe in the World program, a Brussels-based think tank. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website, that's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.